This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reflections on Research. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Uh, Just as a reminder, this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC. You might hear us refer to that uh, throughout the podcast. And that is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and they have a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and programming for young people. And so we certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting-edge research and projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. If this is your first time listening to Reflections on Research, just note that you can find new episodes of this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. And you can always get the scoop on, you know, these podcasts and and publications and other work of the center by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter. That's easy to do right there on the homepage of the website. So I'm very excited to have uh, both of our guests with us today. We often don't do these with two guests, but today I'm very lucky to have uh, a couple of real leading scholars in the youth mentoring space with us today, and and we'll be talking a lot about a, a major new uh, piece of research that they have done that I think says a lot about the direction of this field and and where we need to go. So our first guest is uh, Liz Raposa, and Liz is an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham University, and she received her PhD in clinical psychology from UCLA, where she studied how early life adversity influences psychosocial and biological development in ways that create risk for poor mental health and physical health later in life. So really looking at kind of the impact of those adverse childhood experiences. After getting her PhD, she took a postdoctoral fellowship as a MacArthur Foundation Network Fellow at UMass Boston, where uh, she worked with our, our other guests today. And, you know, today Liz's research really investigates how early life stressors influence trajectories of development and how close relationships with parents, peers, and others, such as mentors, might mitigate the negative impact of those early stressors on youth. So thank you for joining us today, Liz. Thanks for having me. And uh, our other guest uh, is someone who needs uh, almost no introduction, but I'll do it anyways, and that is Dr. Jean Rhodes. Uh, Jean is the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology and the Director of the Center for Evidence-Based Mentoring at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, She's devoted her career to understanding and advancing the role of intergeneral relationships in the intellectual, social, educational, and career development of youth. She has published three, soon to be four, I believe, books, uh, and has edited and authored over 150 chapters and peer-reviewed articles 
on topics related to positive youth development, the transition to adulthood, uh, natural disasters, and how youth cope with those, and youth mentoring. So welcome, Jean. Thank you. I'm really excited to have both of you here because you recently published a meta-analysis of mentoring that uh, we'll be talking about here in a minute. But I want to start off just talking a little bit about just the relationship that you two have. Uh, Liz is a former student of of Jean's. I was intrigued by, you know, given your background, kind of doing this research around negative experiences, trauma early in the lives of children and, and kind of how that plays out over the course of their lives. What was it that drew you to the opportunity at, at UMass Boston and, and to work with Jean? Could you talk a little bit about kind of how you wound up there? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, yeah, I, I as a graduate student went in and I was interested a lot in figuring out what puts kids most at risk for various mental health problems. And and again, like you mentioned, I really became focused on these early family and neighborhood environments and how they can be especially stressful in ways that shape kids' behaviors. So I studied a lot of things like growing up in poverty or growing up with a parent who had really severe psychopathology um, that made them somewhat unpredictable at home. And then how those early life stressors shaped kids' behavior and their access to supportive relationships and even sometimes their physical health. But almost immediately as I started doing that work, I became intrigued by what we could do to help. So how we could work to offset these risks we saw in kids who are growing up in stressful home environments. Um, And as a clinical psychologist, I was primarily learning evidence-based psychotherapies. So getting my clinical training, sitting in an office, often working one-on-one with either an individual, maybe an adolescent who was coming to see me, or the family of a single child. And I was struck by how um, the ones that I most wanted to work with, the, the people who seemed like they might need my help the most, weren't the ones who were consistently making it into the clinic. They weren't typically the kids that I was seeing on a day-to-day basis. And so after I finished graduate school, I started to seek out opportunities for learning more about interventions that might help larger numbers of kids, especially those who are in the highest risk circumstances. Um, And that's where I kind of uh, stumbled across Jean's bio and reading through the work that she'd done. It was like a dream come true. It was a perfect fit for what I was looking for. And, And working with her really transformed the way that I think about intervening with these high-stress youth. It, it led me to consider sort of the context of the whole community as I was thinking about interventions that we could take outside of the clinic or outside of the therapy office. Great. Thanks. No, and I'm not surprised that you, you know, found some of those connections for your work in mentoring. I did an interview on this series a few weeks ago with Sam McQuillan, and we wound up talking about kind of task shifting um, and, and you know, kind of getting mentors trained up on how to support youth with mental health needs a little bit more effectively by training them on some evidence-based practices. And he talked a lot about, you know, the role of community and the role of others in, in uh, helping youth work through those challenges. So I'm, I'm glad you found that connection with Gene. Uh, Gene, I wanted to just ask you, you know, you've obviously been one of the leading scholars in this space for several decades now. And I know that you've uh, had a number of former students, not just Liz, but many others, Matt Hagler, a whole crew of folks that are now kind of uh, launching their own careers 
uh, under your tutelage. And I'm just, you know, wanted to ask how gratifying it is for you to see kind of a new generation of, of scholars learning from you and going out on their own and, and doing major new work uh, in the way that Liz has. Well, you can imagine it's, you know, one of the most gratifying aspects of the job is, you know, working with people who have so much to teach me, you know, the, the mentoring that works best is often reciprocal. And as this new generation of psychologists come around, they have tools, evidence-based, you know, treatments, things that were not part of my training that I'm learning so much from. And I have learned so much from Liz and even as a methodologist and a thinker, I'm able to benefit in many ways. And one of the more gratifying things has also been, you know, in addition to working with Matt Hagler and Liz and Sarah Schwartz and even Renee Spencer, I was on her dissertation committee, was seeing my own daughter, Audrey, follow in my footsteps. And she recently defended her dissertation on topics related to social support and youth at risk. And so it's really, I almost feel like I could retire and the best work would still go on. Well, congratulations to Audrey. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that must be uh, really gratifying to see, uh, even in the family, uh, the tradition continues. And certainly, Gene, you're somebody who uh, I would consider to be a mentor for me. Certainly, uh, you've taught me a great many things over the years. And it's really great to see uh, kind of students of yours, you know, we was talking sports about coaching trees, you know, who, which coaches learn from other coaches. I think you've got a nice researcher uh, tree branching off from, from your work. I want to talk about, I mentioned it earlier, the meta-analysis that you all published uh, late last year. And I, you know, I've got a million questions <laughs> for you about this. You know, for folks that don't know in our audience kind of what a meta-analysis is, uh, it's simply a, a statistical way of kind of lumping together the results of many different programs, uh, in this case, mentoring programs, in an effort to say something global about how effective or perhaps how not effective uh, those programs were as a whole. And so it's just a way of combining a lot of different individual evaluations into kind of one summative uh, thing. I hope that's a, a decent way of describing it. And we've had a couple of these in the past in in mentoring. Uh, Gene, I believe you were part of a, a couple of them, the last one in 2011. Uh, Liz, what made you decide to want to do another one now? Uh, what was it about kind of where we're at with the research that, that made you think, you know, now is a good time to, to reinvestigate the global effectiveness of, of mentoring? Well, yeah. Well, one of the the many exciting parts about working with Jean as a postdoc is that I was sort of new coming to this field of youth mentoring. And because Jean is so well-established and so knowledgeable about the field, I was able to get a pretty good bird's eye perspective on what was going on with mentoring organizations in general across the country. And as I became familiar with mentoring interventions and started to meet with program leaders and do things like attend the summit, I was really struck by how popular these programs have become. I mean, I knew I participated in mentoring programs as a volunteer when I was younger, but I didn't realize sort of how well organized they've become. They have access to all these tools like NMRC and 
um, like the National Mentoring Partnership, a lot of federal funding um, and local funding sort of pouring into them. And one of my earlier studies with Gene also used census data in the United States to look at how many children are involved in these kinds of mentoring uh, programs. And we found that, you know, over two and a half million kids um, on average across the years, the past decade or so, have been involved in these relationships. And so for that reason, it was really important to me to try to figure out what was going on um, with these programs, given how widespread they are and and how well supported they are. And I should say that a lot of this popularity and, and funding and organization has increased in that in the past decade. So since that last meta-analysis was published in in 2011, um, the studies looked at in in the last one, they ended. The most recent ones were in 2010. So it was right before it seemed like there was a fairly large proliferation of these programs and a lot more organization of the evidence base. And I was interested to see if we include all of those new studies and all of those new programs that have sort of sprouted up, um, would we see different effects? We also have a slightly different pool of studies um, from past meta-analyses. So we wanted to choose only programs that more closely align with um, Gene's developmental theory of mentoring, the ones that are focused on a one-on-one relationship between a kid and someone older than them. So we left out some things that have been included previously, like peer mentoring or more sort of didactic curricula um, where a teacher is is sort of transmitting information rather than real relationship-based mentoring. Gotcha. No, thank you. And and I know I was struck when I first read uh, the meta-analysis that group programs were excluded, um, just knowing how many young people get their mentoring through a, a group model. But uh, it makes sense now uh, in terms of how you put it, that you wanted to focus on one-to-one programs that really fit this kind of model that that Gene had developed. Uh, Gene, do you want to add anything else about kind of the the reason for those uh, kind of exclusionary criteria here and, and just how different of a sample of programs did you wind up with from from previous meta-analyses? Yeah, I mean, it was there was a lot of overlap, but there were some that we excluded because they were peer-to-peer, which is, you know, we, we think that that's an important topic. In fact, um, one of my doctoral students, Sam Burton, is doing her dissertation, uh, a meta-analysis on cross-age peer mentoring. We just felt that what we were most interested in is sort of the classic intergenerational one-to-one mentoring. And so by kind of just really focusing in on that type of mentoring, we thought we could get a very clear answer about its effectiveness without having to shade it by saying, well, there's these different kinds of relationships and so forth. We also were very particular about the outcomes we looked at. So in the past, you know, um, one variable that people often lump together is something called psychosocial outcomes. And, you know, when you really look at that, that's really not as meaningful as if you said, you know, let's look at uh, mental health outcomes. Let's look at social outcomes. Those are really different. Internalizing is different from externalizing. And so we tried to align more with psychopathology and, you know, applied developmental science um, in terms of the outcomes that, that we used. Got it. Makes sense. And, uh, and yeah, I don't blame you for kind of tossing out, you know, programs that may work through different mechanisms and different pathways, right? So for group mentoring, you know, we did a podcast earlier this year with Gabe Cooperman talking about how those programs facilitate change for young people and, you know, really different process. So I I think it makes sense to kind of pare it down in the way that you did here. I don't want to keep our audience waiting. Uh, Let's dive right into the findings from your meta-analysis. 
uh, you know, what did you find in terms of the overall effectiveness of mentoring? Uh, and were there any areas that you looked at where, where mentoring really uh, seemed to shine as a, a way of supporting young people? Yeah, so the the effects of mentoring on average were relatively modest and also fairly universal across all different kinds of youth outcomes. So when you look at the effect size, um, so essentially just an indicator of how much the mentoring groups changed on particular outcomes relative to a control group, they were small statistically in a statistical sense. They were fairly similar to universal prevention programs impact, so programs that take um, all youth and educate them on a particular topic, let's say substance use, um, in order to try to prevent that, that problem later on. So you could say we're doing relatively well with mentoring compared to some of those other universal prevention programs, but perhaps not quite as well as we'd like to be doing with kids who are already showing some indicators of emotional distress or academic difficulties. There was not a lot of specificity depending on what kind of outcome we looked at. So certain programs were trying to move uh, social relationships and others were trying to improve academic performance. And we saw that there were pretty small but significant, um, statistically significant effects across all of those different domains. And so that was that was kind of consistent with some some past studies as well. Great, thank you. And I wanted to ask about something you touched on there, which was kind of the universality of of positive impact. And you know, it wasn't the hugest impact you would hope for, but you know, you found in pretty much every category of outcome you looked at, including the subcategories. So within something like academics, you have attendance and grades and attitudes about school and you know a host of other things. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like in it seemed like you found that fairly modest impact in almost every area you looked at, including I think it was, um, well, like health, like previous meta-analyses that had, you know, kind of not really good findings around things like obesity or healthy behaviors, but you actually found positive impact there as well. So is that a fair reading of, of the meta-analysis that there really wasn't a single area you looked at where you didn't find some evidence of, of positive gain? Yeah, and it was kind of surprising given past findings from meta-analyses that, that have sometimes found, as you mentioned, differences across these outcomes. Now, we coded these things slightly different, differently, kind of like Jean mentioned. We were a little bit more precise in our coding of different kinds of outcomes and with some very tiny exceptions. So I think we didn't see any impact on actual social skills, like use of different social techniques and relationships. I think substance use was also kind of on the border in terms of its statistical significance. But other than some very small exceptions, we saw that mentoring affected all of those outcomes, um, which is encouraging. And I think you also found similarities across uh, other factors. So, you know, youth ages, program setting, you know, community-based, school-based, that type of thing. You know, I was, I remember reading through the meta-analysis for the first time and just you know, I kept waiting for the bad news and it kind of never came. It seemed like you found that, you know, at least in theory, mentoring can be pretty impactful 
in just about every shape and form it, it comes in. And, and that's really, I think, good news for our field. I also know that you find quite a bit of variability, though, within those studies, right? So when you average them out, you know, they, they seem to have a, a general positive impact, but their results were all over the place. Is that kind of fair to say? That's right. Yeah, there was a substantial amount of variability across studies. So depending on what kind of program was evaluated, and honestly, even within the studies. So um, a lot of times, a certain program would be evaluated, and there'd be a lot of different outcomes that uh, they assessed. And you would sometimes see very different results, depending on what kinds of questions they were asking of the youth. You know, I think that what you're saying, Mike, is right, that, you know, there's there's a shade where you can look at it and say this is good news because it's affecting um, all these outcomes, which is great. But I also think it's important to note that we've made a huge investment in mentoring in the past 20 years, and yet the overall effect size that we got was pretty much identical to what it was 20 years ago. We're not improving youth mentoring, and the effects are pretty modest. And a lot of the effects, you know, further analyses um, that Liz and I and a couple of my doctoral students are doing, we're finding that the, the, the effects are being carried by some of the newer programs that are very targeted. You know, so if you just look at the effect size of more, these more general kind of relationship-based models, friendship models, the effect sizes are very small. And so it's when you put them all in one pot, you get this overall effect that hasn't really changed over the decades. And so the good news is, yeah, it's having this modest effect. The bad news is that we're not boosting that effect. And that particularly given the growing risk of young people, we need to be doing better. We need to be learning more from the research that's being done. Yeah, no, and I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, my heart sunk a little bit when I saw uh, that overall effect size that you you wound up with, I, I believe it was 0.21, which is almost exactly the same as as the other meta-analyses that have been done. And, you know, I was hoping for a, a bigger number there, but I think, you know, you explained why we don't see it, right? We, When you do one of these, you have to include programs that were not successful along with the ones that were. That's kind of how that works. And uh, But I, as someone who's been providing training and TA and resources to programs for almost 20 years, I was... Uh, also a little disheartened to see that there hadn't been more of an obvious shift in in kind of the impact of these programs. I think when you survey programs and ask them how they're doing their work, I think I see a pretty good uptick in in the application of what we consider best practices. But, you know, I just feel like, you know, this field has shifted a little bit over the years. We're trying to serve youth with, with, you know, more elevated levels of risk, I think, than maybe we were in the past. Um, and I think we've had to figure that out as we go as a field, right? You know, and, and so I think the results are always kind of lagging behind what we think they might be. Build on that point real quickly. I think that's a really important point, this idea of we're treating kids with more elevated risk. Because these effect sizes, if you look at an effect size of something like 0.2, from our meta-analysis, it's actually pretty good. It's decent if you're thinking about universal prevention programs that are not that are not dealing with kids who are sort of acutely distressed or struggling with a lot of different issues. But what I found kind of concerning is that if you look at programs where kids are coming in already struggling with things like aggression or problems at school or anxiety or depression where they have more room to improve, so to speak, so uh, elevated rates of symptoms that um, could come down, these effect sizes are actually 
pretty small and, and pretty concerning. It means that we're not really moving the needle a ton on some of the more significant issues that that our kids are bringing in. And that was one point, I think, for me that was more concerning about our findings and, and led me to sort of think a little bit more about what kinds of interventions we're going to need, given the kinds of referrals that most of the mentoring programs I talked to are typically getting. Well, and, and you did do some analysis here that tried to find out you know, were there certain things about programs that moderated their effectiveness? And I'm hoping you can tell our audience a little bit about, you know, what were those programmatic factors that when you did a deeper analysis, you know, what were the things that tended to make mentoring programs have stronger outcomes uh, than others? Uh, there was a handful of them that I think came out. Yeah, there were a few that were consistent with past studies that have asked this question. So we saw larger impacts in programs that had a higher percentage of male youth, which is an interesting finding that is has come up a couple of times now. We're not entirely sure what that's about. It might have to do with the referral uh, questions that male youth come in with relative to female youth. Um, so that's one interesting point. We also found larger effect sizes when there was a greater number of mentors who came from helping profession backgrounds. So that kind of makes sense, people who can deal with some of these more significant issues that kids bring in. One thing that was new that we found was that programs that had longer meeting times as an expectation were actually less effective. So if, you know, the program said, we expect you to meet for five hours with your youth or half a day or whatever it might be, um, that that could potentially be less effective overall than a program that had uh, less extensive requirements for how long you met with your, your match or your, your buddy. And so that was kind of an interesting finding we haven't seen before. We think it might have to do with the burden that's placed on the, the mentor and the youth that if there are really huge expectations that they can't meet, um, they may be more likely to not meet as often or to not get as much out of it because of, of quitting the program or something like that. It's also possible that that longer meeting time is just sort of a proxy for meeting fewer times, right? So meeting for an entire day, but only once every couple months versus meeting for shorter periods of time more frequently. Um, so more research will have to be done to really figure out what's going on there. And then we found a couple of things with respect to the type of assessment that the program used in order to measure whether a kid was getting better or not. So we tended to see better effects when it was a self-report questionnaire where the kid was answering questions about themselves. And so if you, the sort of optimistic view on this is that maybe kids are just more in tune with how they've changed over the course of mentoring, and so they actually are getting better, but um, people who are observing them may not notice or their behavioral records at school may not um, have noted it yet. And I, I suppose the more pessimistic approach to this finding is that uh, kids may just be more likely to sort of inflate the changes that they've made across the the course of the, the time with the mentor. Yeah. And I, Jean, I believe you once said to me, you know, mentoring seems to be really good at changing attitudes, but not so much on behaviors, right? And so I don't know if that's a, a reflection of that surveying, you know, thing where it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to tell them that I'm doing better, even though, you know, as soon as I leave this room, I'm going to you know, be delinquent or something. So. Yeah, there's also um, a, a pretty robust effect. I think it was a, a meta-analysis by someone named Chung, where they show that the more rigorous the methodology, the smaller the effect. And so self-report is, 
not the most rigorous, getting other people to report like teachers or getting the actual grades from their report cards or things like that, um, you get an attenuated effect when it's a more rigorous way of collecting the data. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about another thing that I think had the potential to influence uh, the outcomes that you saw here. And you wrote about this, you know, I was happy to see you address it in the meta-analysis. And that's uh, something called publication bias, which, you know, is is simply the idea that uh, researchers are more likely to publish and make it easy for folks like you to find uh, studies that were successful, right? And they're less inclined to, if you, you know, say, evaluate some program and the results are terrible, you know, do you want to go to the trouble of typing all that up and submitting it to a journal, right? So you wind up with this body of literature that is you know, only the good things, so to speak. And you did a statistical technique here where you tried to account for that. And, you know, I would have thought that mentoring would have been maybe, you know, pretty bad on that issue in that, you know, nonprofits worried about funding maybe would be asking folks to maybe bury some results and, you know, don't put that out there into the world. But you actually found, I think, the opposite of that in that you wound up concluding that perhaps the the impacts here were underreported. And I was a little confused by that part of the meta-analysis. Could one of you maybe explain how you reached that conclusion that publication bias wasn't a, an issue here? Yeah, this was a bit of a surprising finding. We looked So we looked at publication bias in two ways. One is we looked at whether the type of way that the finding was reported influenced or moderated the effect size. So we looked at whether articles published in journals were different from, say, dissertations or things that were presented at conferences or, you know, government reports. And we didn't find anything there. So no bias in sort of terms of the outlet that the, that the results were published in. But we also did this kind of more statistically complex approach, which is called the funnel plot analysis. And it essentially uses information about the effect size in a study, as well as the study's general capacity to be precise. Um, and when you plot this information, you usually get a fairly recognizable shape. Um, and so you can tell from the plot whether there might be uh, findings that are, that are conspicuously missing. And so for us, there was some indication that we might be missing some of the bigger effect sizes, like you mentioned, that that our overall effect size might actually be underreporting the impact of mentoring. And I don't think that we came up with a real good reason why that might be. It was a little bit surprising to us as well. But one thing that I should note is that even when we reran the analyses to account for that potential bias the effect size did not change much. So it was still 0.29, which, you know, so 0.08 different um, from the original effect size that we reported. Great. Thank you. I appreciate, uh, I think it was the funnel analysis where I, I got lost in the, uh, in the report. So I appreciate you explaining that a little bit more. I guess just one last question to both of you is, you know, what would you really want policymakers and, you know, philanthropists, those that might be investing in mentoring or, thinking about starting up an initiative, uh, what would you want them to know or, or take away from, from this meta-analysis? Uh, well, I would say, you know, look at the fact that despite this big investment, we're not moving the needle. So we need to really rethink how we're doing it. We can't just keep doing the same thing if, we're, if it's not making a difference. And so when you can look for hints in the data that would suggest what you could do to make a difference. And it looks to me like, a little bit more targeted 
evidence-based approaches are really what are going to define mentoring in the years ahead. We can't just have these more general, you know, everybody one size fits all approaches. We need to say this person is dealing with this issue, this person wants this, and let's get the best approach for each of these people. And when you do that, you get much stronger effects. And I would say sort of building on that, this this other worrying trend that mentoring seems to be underperforming relative to other interventions that are working with kids at the same level of risk, right? So relative to things like psychotherapy, where kids, just like in mentoring programs, are often walking in with pretty significant levels of stress and and emotional difficulty and behavioral problems. Um, And so as Jean was alluding to, we may need to be borrowing a little bit more from some of those interventions that are working with kids who are already struggling with some of the things that prevention programs are trying to stop before they happen. Yeah, I should, I should have one little finding is um, that in general, if you look at the risk of kids who are referred to mentoring programs compared to uh, American youth in general, and this is just looking at American youth mentoring programs, uh, they are generally at double the risk for lots of the kinds of things that psychotherapists see. So they're, Compared to the average American kid, a youngster who's referred to a mentoring program is at twice the risk for depression, ADHD, anxiety, um, school problems. You know, I'm saying twice, you know, it it varies around that 50% mark, but they're at very elevated risk. And so like a pendulum, the more you have to improve, the stronger the effect should be. And we're not seeing that. That's kind of what we're saying with, we're not really a universal mentor. prevention program, we're more of an indicated or selective prevention program now because we're dealing with such a higher risk group. And so we need to really sit with that fact and then begin to really target our interventions to those risks. Hey there, podcast people. Because of the length of this interview, we decided to break it up into two parts. So you can download part two in which Gene and Liz continue to talk about the directions they feel the mentoring field needs to go and and we reflect a little bit back on Gene Rhodes' long career leading uh, the world of, of research and mentoring. So if you're curious, please download part two of this interview off the National Mentoring Resource Center website or off of SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever else you find this podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.